community. From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I am a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at Family Research Council. My pleasure to be sitting in for Tony and with you this Friday. So glad that you are with us. A great program ahead of us. Want to remind you that you can find this in every episode at TonyPerkins.com. Also, special announcement that everyone should be aware of because it is primary election season. This month, over a dozen states are holding their primaries. If you are one of them, you need to be prepared. In North Carolina, Kentucky, or Idaho, early voting is taking place right now. And FRC Action is part of the I Voter Guide Coalition, working to provide voter information uh, to candidates and finding, helping you, the voter, understand where candidates stand on the issues that matter most to you. In 2020, over three and a half million voters used I Voter Guide, and we encourage you to be one of the millions using Voter Guide, I Voter Guide this year. Go to frcaction.org, click on Voter Resources. That's frcaction.org. Click on voter resources to get your primary voter guide today. On the program, stories we're going to cover today, interesting story about the National Institute for Health. More than $350 million in payments were made not to the National Institute for Health, but to employees of the National Institute for Health. Some of those recipients are names you might recognize, including one Dr. Fauci, as well as Francis Collins, the former head of NIH. The question is, did this money influence decisions they've been making in recent years? We are going to talk about that today. A terrible story out of Nigeria. A Christian college student there was burned to death for saying things critical of Muhammad. It was recorded on video and published on the Internet as well. Will this moment be a turning point in the war against religious persecution in Nigeria? We certainly hope so. We're going to talk about that story today. In addition, because it's Friday, we are going to have our worldview conversation. And today we're going to talk about what we can learn about the fact that the abortion industry has targeted churches in the protest over Roe versus Wade. Is that a problem for the church or a sign that we're doing something right? We'll talk about that today. But first, our headlines on Monday. The Senate voted unanimously to pass a measure to provide Supreme Court justices and their family members with around-the-clock security protection. But the Democratic leadership in the House has yet to bring the measure to the floor for a vote. Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn, who introduced the Supreme Court policy, the Supreme Court Police Parity Act, together with Democratic Senator Chris Coons said the House is trying to make unnecessary additions to the measure to include protections for law clerks and other Supreme Court staff members, but some question whether staff are visible enough to warrant the protection. Senator Cornyn is calling on House Democrats to stop stalling and act with a sense of urgency. I shudder to think what might happen if the Supreme Court members and their family are denied this sort of protection, which the Senate is unanimously supported because uh, it gets slow walked in the House. Here with me now to talk about all of it is Harris Alec, the Capitol Hill reporter for The Washington Times. Harris, welcome back to Washington Watch. 
Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Now, tell us, give us an update. What is happening with the Supreme Court Police Parity Act today? Sure. Well, absolutely. So the bill obviously passed unanimously in the Senate. All 100 uh, senators, Democrats and Republicans fell in line behind it. That barely ever happens. That shows just how worried lawmakers are that uh, these protests that we've seen outside the homes of Justices Samuel Alito, uh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett and uh, the others are uh, increasingly becoming more and more problematic. Um, and lawmakers are, are very much uh, of the opinion that uh, legislation should be passed, allowing the Supreme Court police to offer round-the-clock protection for the justices and their immediate family. Now, this, even though this bill passed unanimously in the Senate, uh, it's kind of hit a roadblock in the House. Um, the House Democratic leadership, led by Nancy Pelosi and Sandy Hoyer, won a more expansive bill uh, authored by Representative Greg Stanton of Arizona that would provide that ex- that would expand that level of protection granted to justices and their immediate family to also include law clerks, to include essentially anyone who might be working on the uh, on the potential overturn of Roe versus Wade. Uh, Democrats say that this is desperately needed. They say that uh, law clerks are uh, incredibly becoming more and more the targets of, uh, you know, potential political violence. I haven't heard any cases like that, neither of any of the Republicans who are criticizing uh, this push by Democrats. A lot of Republicans are saying that in reality, Democrats want to slow this uh, as much as possible in the hopes that these protests outside the homes of Justice Coney Barrett, Justice uh, uh, Samuel Alito, and the other justices are going to pressure uh, the five or six conservative, Repub- uh, conservative judges on the Supreme Court who were appointed by Republicans into potentially deciding not to overturn Roe. Uh, they're saying that Democrats want to keep the political pressure up both day and night in front of the homes of these justices and uh, at both the uh, and uh, in front of the Supreme Court in an effort to ensure that uh, these people really kind of understand what uh, would be at stake if they overturned Roe. This is really problematic, and it's obviously politicizing the issue. Very quickly, is there any chance that they're trying to get ahead of the possibility that the leaker will be discovered, and so they're trying to distract from the threats to the justice? That's definitely something that has come up in conversations that I've had with Republicans. I think uh, they're essentially expecting that this leaker will either make himself known in the near future and hopefully try and uh, potentially try to reap some professional and financial benefits. I mean, we've seen what Miles what Miles Taylor has been able to do from just being uh, the assistant uh, uh, chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security for about nine months. Uh, so that is definitely a concern. But I think more so this is also just a political ploy by Democrats, at least that's how Republicans are seeing it, to really kind of keep the pressure up because, um, you know, uh, most Democrats see these justices as being illegally appointed because they say, well, President Donald Trump, uh, you know, may have been uh, helped uh, uh, to uh, to elected by Russia and all this other stuff. So they say that he's an illegitimate president. They say these justices are also illegitimate. They say these justices lied about their position uh, in believing that Roe was set precedent. So they, uh, you know, they're in no position to be doing these guys any favors right now. And I think that's what we're seeing in the House. Harris Alec, Washington Times, thank you so much for being with us today. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Of course, the houses of the six conservative Supreme Court justices aren't the only place that have been targeted by pro-abortion protesters. In recent days, they've also targeted churches, pregnancy resource centers, and pro-life groups. Can anything be done to protect others who find themselves in the crosshairs of pro-abortion activists? And joining me now to talk about this is Congressman Warren Davidson, who is a U.S. Army veteran and a member of the Republican Study Committee and the House Freedom Caucus. He represents Ohio's 8th Congressional District. Congressman Davidson, welcome back to the program. Always an honor. Thanks for talking about this important subject. 
Thanks for taking some time. You joined 39 other Republican members of Congress in introducing a congressional resolution condemning the intimidation tactics that we've seen in recent weeks since the leak. What are you most concerned about? Well, I mean, I'm most concerned that the justices hold the line and and, uh, end Roe v. Wade. I mean, hopefully uh, it stays the majority opinion of the court uh, only gets – at least stays as strong, if not stronger, than the leaked version. Uh, so, you know, that's my most important thing out of this. But obviously the leak was wrong. Whoever did it uh, was wrong. It's a huge violation of trust. It's unethical, uh, hopefully also illegal, uh, and, and something that shouldn't ever be repeated in the court. Um, and, and because, you know, what does it lead to? It leads to intimidation of uh, justices, and it is a, a crime. Uh, to try to intimidate justices in order to influence a decision. It seems very clear that's what uh, they're trying to do. And uh, it's disappointing that uh, the attorney general, Merrick Garland, isn't enforcing federal law here. He had no problem cracking down on parents uh, who showed up at school board meetings and said things that were perfectly legal, protected speech. Uh, But he seems to have difficulty enforcing the law, uh, but in a very selective way. And let's talk about that for a moment, because what you raise there is the question of whether the Department of Justice is responding differently to these protests than they did to other forms of protest or or opposition at school board meetings, and whether the federal government is responding differently based on the views of those who are expressing their opinions. Now, back in October, when he was being grilled over his infamous memo regarding the threats posed by concerned parents, uh, Attorney General Garland said the memo is not partisan in any way. Here's what he said. I'm going to say again, the memorandum that I issued is not partisan in any way. It has nothing to do with what I agree with or I don't agree with. I don't care whether the threats of violence come from the left or the right. Congressman Davidson, do you think that's the case? No one believes that. I mean, no one believes that. And when you say things like that, uh, that's when you decide that you need to create something like a disinformation governance board uh, to try to skew the truth. They're, they're, they're totally uh, deceitful there and, and in so many other ways. Uh, so, look, uh, the way that they responded to that, it took a total between the time that the parents protested at the Loudoun County School Board to the letter to uh, the Department of Education that led to Merrick Garland um, sending stuff out to the field offices, to the FBI sending stuff to their offices, you know, in a matter of three weeks. And as my friend uh, Jim Jordan likes to say, when have you ever seen the federal government move that fast? That's a fair point. Um, in addition, on this on this subject, there are reports uh, from whistleblowers about the anti-terrorism tools from the Department of Justice being used against those parents. Have you seen evidence that that whistleblower may have had that has convinced you that the federal government's anti-terrorism tools are being used against parents expressing their concern at school board meetings? Well, that's certainly the whistleblower claim. And, and of course, that would contradict Mayor Garland's statement uh, that, that no Patriot Act authorities were being used. And that itself is a little deceitful because a lot of times the the executive branch doesn't actually lean on the, the Patriot Act. I, I actually had uh, Attorney General Barr tell me that he thought the Patriot Act was a limitation on their authority. And that's because this Executive Order 12333, 12, 12,333, 
um, is far more expansive than the Patriot Act, and it needs to be defunded and, and banned. It, to me, it's unconstitutional. Uh, and so it could be that he was truthful that they didn't rely on uh, Patriot Act authorities to do this, but they did rely on the executive order uh, 12333. So, look, this is a real problem. I do think he's selectively enforcing it. And that's where I really hope that the neighboring Republican governors, uh, Governor Youngkin and, and Governor Hogan, uh, use the authority that they have uh, in, in their executive branch to protect these justices and to make sure that there's no uh, inappropriate undue influence that could try to change the outcome of this uh, judicial opinion. Uh, you know, we want it decided on the merits, but, you know, we've stayed within the system uh, broadly as a movement for, you know, since since Roe was wrongly decided. And uh, we certainly hope to see a triumph of justice here in CNN to Roe v. Wade, and we hope states uh, decide to do the right thing and recognize that life begins at conception. And it already is federal law to protest outside the home of a judge or otherwise try to influence them. We haven't seen those laws used on their behalf yet, but maybe we are going to see that happen soon. Congressman Davidson, thank you for bringing this issue to our attention and for your time today as well. God bless you. You as well. Thank you. This is an interesting story because if justices, if protesters begin the habit of targeting people at their home, Supreme Court justices, judges or politicians in general, that's a real deterrent to people getting involved in the process. And that's a problem for all of us if no one wants to serve. But coming up next... Uh, thanks in part to its questionable messaging and actions during COVID, the National Institute for Health has a credibility problem. We'll talk. Join Family Research Council on an exciting two-year journey through the Bible. FRC's Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan helps you to dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into the cultural issues of the day. God has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. By studying the Bible, we can see God's plan unfold throughout the past and be encouraged by how the truth of Scripture is still relevant in our current day and will be into the future. The Stand on the Word reading plan engagingly and thoughtfully takes you through the daily scripture to help you stay grounded in God's truth. You can start this reading plan with Family Research Council today. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your family and friends. Visit frc.org Bible to begin this journey through the Bible today. Although most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, studies show that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. That is why Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview was created. The center serves to help Christians understand the importance of Scripture, why it must be authoritative, and how it can equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC Center for Biblical Worldview provide resources to help prepare believers to give a scriptural answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access these free resources at frc.org worldview. See the center's latest blogs, op-eds, and publications by signing up for the newsletter at frc.org worldview email.
want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Again, search Stand Firm and download the app today. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So thankful that you are with us. Over the past decade, the National Institutes of Health and hundreds, possibly thousands of scientists, including Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins, received more than $350 million in private, non-transparent royalty payments from third parties in the scientific, research, and healthcare industries. Now, this information comes from an investigation by the organization OpenTheBooks.com. It's a project of American transparency that obtains and posts all disclosed spending at every level of government. So what can we learn from these findings? Joining me now to talk about this is Mark Tapscott. He's the Capitol Hill correspondent at Epoch Times, who first reported this story. Mark, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Joseph. It's great to be here. How are you? I'm well. This is a great story. Interesting story. Tell us a bit more about these payments. Why are people at NIH receiving royalty payments of any kind? Well, that's a great question. And in fact, it's probably the question at the heart of this, because the NIH is being very, very um, close-mouthed about um, who is making the payments. They have not identified the payers. And they are also being making it very difficult to learn anything but the most general details about who in the government um, receives the payments and for what. And I have to tell you, there was a congressional hearing that I covered uh, the day before yesterday on Wednesday, where uh, Congressman John Molinar from Michigan asked the acting director of NIH, uh, why isn't this in a, uh, a conflict of interest? And the acting administrator conceded. He said, well, yeah, I can see how that has the appearance Mark? of conflict. Yeah, yes. Mark, we actually have a copy of that. And just so people can catch up, let's go ahead and play that clip and, and let our audience hear the exchange so they know what you're referring to. Do you not see that as a conflict or an appearance of a conflict of information? I, I, I certainly can understand that it might seem as an appearance, but and, and, and it's the sort of thing that maybe we could uh, work together on so that we can explain to you the firewalls that we do have in place. So, <clears throat> Mark, these payments, and I want to clarify something. This is not money that's coming from healthcare companies or outside sources that is going to fund research at NIH. This is going to the personal bank accounts of people the who individual. work for NIH. Is that yeah. correct? Yes. 
And and a good part of it is it, it's a very it's a classic Washington bureaucracy. The company makes the payment to NIH, which then makes the payment to the individual. And that's so that they can say the income is not coming from an outside source, but rather from the government. But, you know, as Congressman Molinar said, that that's the very essence of a conflict of interest. And so or right now, of a conflict. so right now there's a record of these payments going to NIH, but we don't know who they're coming from. Is that correct? Exactly. NIH knows, but the rest of us don't. And the concern, therefore, would be that the people giving this money to NIH, which is finding its way into the personal bank accounts of the people running NIH, they might have some influence over the decisions that they might be making, correct? Exactly. Open the books. They had to, they filed a Freedom of Information Act asking for all of this information. Uh, NIH didn't even respond to it, so opened the books, uh, took them to federal court, and a judge said, "Hey, you can't ignore them. You've you've got to you've got to give them this." So they are now slow walking the production of the documents that have been requested. It's cl- it's classic Washington. Well, what's the outcome of this going to be? How long has it been since the judge said you must turn this information over? Uh, a couple of months, and they have so far produced um, several thousand documents that cover the period <clears throat> 2010 to 2014. And the $350 million figure that you mentioned at the outset uh, is, a, is open the books projection for the whole of 2010 to 2020. So, and, and I'm sure it's, it's, it, if anything, it underestimates what's the actual total is. Is there, are there any d- dots that we're expecting to be connected in this? Is there other evidence that suggests we, we think we know who's making these contributions to NIH that are finding their way? Or is this just well, a big <laughs> mystery? It's a question. Back in 2005, the Associated Press uh, was able to obtain a great deal of information about these royalty payments. Uh, back when they were about nine million a year, now they're about apparently about thirty-five million dollars a year. Uh, but they got the names of the people who were doing the paying, and they were predominantly pharmaceutical companies, and that makes sense. You would expect that. That's not shocking, um, but no. it's also troubling because we just. We just went through two years of probably the, the most public example that the country has ever seen of how pharmaceutical companies have an interest in policy decisions made by the federal government. And, of course, they made, I don't know if it's hundreds of billions, but many billions in, in the, the COVID response uh, to things. What do, we, what do you think the result of this is going to be? Is there something that Congress can do? Because this seems so obviously problematic that federal employees working at a federal agency can personally benefit from additional funds up and beyond, above and beyond their personal salaries. Is there a desire and interest in Congress to to cut this off, to make sure that 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 Hmm. obvious conflict that would be created by that no longer exists? Well, I haven't talked to every member of Congress yet, but the ones that I did talk to uh, in my reporting uh, across the board, they all said, Wow, this this we we've got to look into this. We need to investigate this. Now, all of those that said that were Republicans. I 
tried to get comments from a number of Democrats, uh, and they they had no comment. So if something is going to be done, it probably won't be done in this Congress. But I would be very concerned about um, if I was uh, working at NIH and getting royalties, I'd be really concerned about 2023. Well, this is one of those things that feels like it should be bipartisan, that you don't want um, you don't want public servants publicly or personally benefiting in a financial way from the decisions they make as public servants, because that's just the opposite of serving the public uh, when that's happening. Yes. And and I can understand why the Democrats at this point would be protecting their own because it does look bad. But I've got to think everybody's going to come together eventually and make this stop. Mark Tapscott, thank you so much for your time today. You too, Joseph. Thanks a lot. Stay with us when we come back. A tragic story out of Nigeria about persecution. Will this be the beginning of the end there? We hope. Most of us have at least one friend or family member who is pro-choice or have engaged with someone who doesn't share our pro-life views. As Christians, we are called to defend the weak and to speak truth in love. When we advocate for the unborn, we must do so in a way that is both honest and loving. At Family Research Council, we recognize the inherent dignity of every human life, from conception until natural death. The value of human life is not conditional upon its usefulness to others or an arbitrary evaluation of a person's quality of life. Rather, the value of human life is unconditional because God, the author of life, has created all humans in his image. FRC's Center for Human Dignity exists to give a voice to the voiceless by helping others speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Access our free resources at frc.org life so that you can address abortion, human trafficking, pornography, and more. Attention university students, do you feel called to promote faith, family, and freedom in public policy and the culture? Are you hoping to grow in Christian leadership? Then join Family Research Council for an unforgettable internship. FRC's 12 to 15 week internship program is designed to educate university students who are passionate about public service and who believe that a biblical worldview is necessary for government to serve the people and for culture to thrive. As an intern, you work alongside FRC's experts who will invest in your personal and professional development as you prepare to make a kingdom impact in the world. This paid internship offers free housing in D.C., allowing you to experience community with other faithful conservatives in the nation's capital. For more information and to apply, visit frc.org slash internships. That's frc.org slash internships. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. I want to remind you the website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can find this in every episode of Washington Watch On Demand. Shocking news emerged from Nigeria yesterday. It was a Christian student named Deborah Yukubu was beaten and burned to death after being accused of blaspheming the Prophet Muhammad. A gruesome video of the murder went viral on social media, causing outrage among the Christian community in Nigeria and many others. But brutal violence against Christians throughout the country has not only been commonplace for decades, but has dramatically increased in recent months. 
Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had declared Nigeria a country of particular concern in December of 2020, yet the Biden administration inexplicably removed Nigeria from that important and useful designation, even as the violence increased while international news coverage nearly vanished. Now, here to discuss all of this is Leela Gilbert, Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom at FRC. Leela, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. This is a terrible story, but give us a little more background. What do you know about what has happened to this college student? Yes, uh, what I understand from reading about it is that she had posted on a chat on WhatsApp just back and forth with people and apparently made some reference to what profit or, you know, something. It wasn't even derogatory so much as just kind of questioning which profit are we talking about? Or maybe it was it was more than that. Whatever it was, a gang of young men attacked her uh, yesterday and beat her and beat her. And they were yelling and screaming. And unfortunately, there was a gruesome video. And I didn't watch it, and I won't. But it, it showed them shouting and laughing and saying, this is blasphemy, this is blasphemy. And then they threw petrol on her and, and, and lit a flame to and once she we think she was dead by then, but burned her her body. So this was about as violent as it gets, except it really isn't. I mean, if you follow Nigeria's story, what you find is that this kind of thing happens a lot. This time it was an individual student at a college. It was videoed and it was shown on social media. We've had accounts of churches burned, people, horrible stories. I mean, this is not unique, but it is good. It focuses on what happened. What is the environment there in Nigeria that makes something like this in very public places possible, that makes people feel like they can do something like this and get away with it? There's been absolutely no response from the government or very, very little. And in fact, Many people think the government, if not complicit in these attacks, is at least uh, watching with interest. Um, The the president is a radical Muslim. He has surrounded himself by radicals from his particular ethnic group, the Fulani tribe, all of whom are not radicals, but the particular group that he's associated with is radicalized. So the government is doing next to nothing, if not at times being complicit. And then on top of that, you have people that are terrified and they are running. There are 8 million people that are refugees from northern Nigeria. So this whole situation is so violent and so bad that people are living in great fear. And we have groups like ISIS involved now, as well as Boko Haram, which is merged with ISIS, and then these Fulani radicals. So it's mayhem and it's going on pretty much every week now, 20, 30 people killed. Leela, just last week, Tony, of course, who is part has been part of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, um, addressed the situation in Nigeria. Let's go ahead and play clip five. Then I want to get your reaction to this. Some say it's an issue of scarcity of resources. It's an issue between farmers and and herders. But clearly, the evidence suggests that religion is playing a key component in the. Uh, conflict there in Nigeria and must be a part of the discussions. 
Now, Leela, Tony there referenced the idea that this is being framed by some as not necessarily a religious issue. It's farmers and herders. Is there an incentive or an effort to minimize the religious nature of this and attribute this conflict to something else? Well, that's been very much part of American diplomacy about this. It's been hard to get any kind of response from the State Department, and it was wonderful when former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo actually de declared this a country of, com of concern, particular concern, but that was disappeared. And again, when you talk to people at the State Department, and this is well, it's well documented that it's always about climate change. It's about, you know, farmers that are losing their land because somebody wants their, their uh, herds to graze. In fact, these are attacks where Alu Akbar is cried out. It's very clear if you listen to what the terrorists are saying, what it's about. And whether those other factors are partially responsible for triggering it, fine. But that's not what we're looking at here. Well, in this case, uh, when we're dealing with a, a college student on a college campus, it's it's it seems self-evident based on everything that we know publicly, at least this had nothing to do with farmers and herders, but was was uh, much different than that. Uh, Leela, is there anything is there any hope that the public nature of this incident will get the State Department in the United States to change its position and do something about this? Well, let's hope so. I mean, I don't have high hopes that they're going to completely change their position, but it might draw enough attention to the disgrace of it that it will maybe cause some sort of response. That's all we can we hope, hope it does. We hope to we, we, we are we are out of time, so we have got to go. But thank you so much for updating in this today. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. Stay with us. Our worldview conversation when we come back. On the other side, here on Washington Watch. Religious liberty is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's own choosing and to live in accordance with those beliefs. It is an inherent human right. Therefore, Family Research Council's Center for Religious Liberty strives to advance religious liberty for all people of all faiths. Advocates for strong religious liberty protections are often labeled bigots. But for those familiar with the history of religious liberty in the United States, until recently, it was embraced by a majority of Americans. In fact, religious liberty has historically had bipartisan support. Today, efforts to restrict this freedom have become increasingly common. Therefore, Christians need to articulate with greater clarity why we support religious liberty and why all people are served when religious liberty thrives. Access the Center for Religious Liberty's free resources to learn more at frc.org slash religious liberty. In today's culture, there are few examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need a model of leadership, strength, courage, and sacrificial love that they can look to. But where can they find it? Try our Stand Courageous Men's Ministry. We seek to help men develop a strong, biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. We invite you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who struggle with the same issues you do 
and we'll invest in unpacking our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can have the generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. At Family Research Council, we want to be able to keep you informed on our latest resources and events. Due to the growing threat of tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've created a tech subscription platform so that we can stay connected. So if we get canceled, you can continue to receive updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. Well, since the draft of the U.S. Supreme Court opinion in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case leaked last week, the left has wasted no time in reacting. They vandalized churches, firebombed the offices of the pro- pro-life organizations, and staked out the homes of six justices of the Supreme Court. Of course, the media is already running wild with speculation of a corporate backlash against states that adopt pro-life legislation following the official release of the ruling. Now, as Christians concerned about life, human dignity, and the direction of our nation, how should we respond to these actions? Now, the Bible teaches us both to expect persecution, but also to love our enemies, so what's the right way to respond to all of this? And joining me now in our weekly Worldview Conversation is the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview, David Kloss. And David, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. Happy Friday, Joseph. Happy Friday to you. I think we have a lot to work with this week. There's been a lot of reactions. There's been a lot of emoting. There's been a lot of arguments made, a lot of protesting, all of which Um, gives us some insight into the way people are seeing the world. And I want to spend some time uh, dissecting with you the arguments that we're hearing from the other side, understand the worldview implications of those arguments, and then get a sense of what's the right way for us to be responding to this. this. Now, first, I want to uh, play a clip of a protest from outside of a church in Seattle. We know there's a lot of brilliance in the city of Seattle. Let's play clip seven and let's uh, see what we can learn. Now, David, there's a lot there that I want to work through. First, it's just these ideas that these are Christian fascists trying to control women's body. And she said, a fetus is not a baby. A woman is not an incubator. Abortion is not murder. Now, first, is the idea that are Christians fascists for being pro-life and saying abortion is not legal? Not at all, Joseph. And I just think it's really interesting uh, to see 
this is taking place all over the country. I think, you know, you and I have talked about this before, Joseph, maybe not on air, uh, but when I, um, the night that the leak of this uh, majority opinion, what appears to be a majority opinion, came out, I was actually just a couple blocks away from the Supreme Court, and uh, I think I was maybe the 50th person there, and over the next couple of hours, thousands of people showed up. And I think the first verse, Joseph, that came to my mind was actually Ephesians 6:12, where it says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and, and the powers of darkness. And I think what the entire country is now able to see all over the country, specifically with the targeting of churches, is that there really is a spiritual component uh, to this uh, violent reaction against uh, potentially Roe v. Wade being overturned after 49 years. David, do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing that the abortion industry clearly sees the church as the enemy in this? Because, you know, for better or for worse, as soon as they fear that Roe is about to be overturned, what do they do? Well, they went to some justices' houses as well, but then they went to churches all over America to vent and express their outrage. Is this a problem for the church that it would be identified in opposition to abortion? Or is it a sign that the church is pushing back against things that need to be pushed back against? Well, I think it's the latter, Joseph. And, you know, our colleague George Barna has uh, done extensive surveys and researching on the, the you know, the worldview of Americans, we know only 6% of Americans have what you could call a biblical worldview. And even when you go into the church, the number is not uh, that much better. But I think what this reaction all over the country has shown is that in the popular imagination of most Americans, uh, the church uh, still represents God. It still represents uh, a stance for morality, a stance for uh, the protection of the unborn. Uh, so I think, and thankfully, you know, there's a lot of churches, you know, I've talked about this, Joseph, uh, theologically liberal churches that capitulated on the abortion issues probably years ago, within the last, you know, 30 years ago. But still in the popular imagination of many Americans, uh, the church, and I think what they would mean by that would be the Roman Catholic Church, and then theologically conservative evangelical churches, Presbyterian, Southern Baptist, and, and the popular imagination of Americans, uh, the church is pro-life and opposes abortion. And to directly to your question, I think that's a good thing. And one of the things I do here at FRC is try to provide resources to equip pastors to make that very stand uh, that the Bible affirms the person of the unborn. And this is an issue. There's a lot of issues the Bible doesn't give a specific guidance on this issue, the Bible absolutely speaks clearly. And I think it's uh, it's interesting. It's uh, in one sense that I think uh, helpful to see that in the minds of many Americans, the church still stands for life, and it ought to. David, the woman referring to the church as Christian fascists in that video that we played clearly is not enthusiastic about what the church is doing. So what would you say to the idea that because of the church's position in opposition to abortion, that woman is not open to hearing the gospel. And perhaps that's a mistake because they put this quote-unquote political issue uh, ahead of the gospel and closed off some people to a willingness to listen. One, well, my response to the, that, Joseph, I immediately think of the verse that Billy Graham asked to be put on his tombstone, John fourteen six, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Well, my goodness, is there a more offensive message than that 
that uh, people, uh, humanity, is sinful, uh, that we've rebelled against the holy God, that we have to repent of our sins and turn in faith, asking his forgiveness. And so the, the actual message of Christianity is an offensive message to a, a world uh, that is in rebellion against God. And so, sure, I, I think Christians shouldn't go out of their way to be offensive, but the message of Christianity in and of itself, it confronts us in our sin, it convicts us. And uh, so whether it's the exclusivity of the gospel or uh, sexual ethics or what the scripture teaches on the life issue, um, I think we need to, uh, Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 4. We want to be people who speak the truth in love, but it's never loving, Joseph, uh, to not speak the truth. That's exactly right. Uh, you can't speak the truth in love unless you believe the truth is actually loving. One other point I want to address in that video where this, this woman Again, in a megaphone outside of a church, she said, a fetus is not a baby. A woman is not an incubator. Abortion is not murder. And when she says a fetus is not a baby, she's actually making a point that is deeply unscientific. Because at this point, of all the things that are not settled in science, one of the things that is essentially settled in science is the fact that a, that a, an embryo or a fetus, whatever you want to call an unborn child, is in every way a human being. But what she's making is this argument known as personhood theory and this idea that being a human being is not all of it takes to be a person deserving of legal rights and protections. And this is this, this strange dualism. And it is a worldview. It is not a scientific claim. It is a moral and religious and a philosophical claim that says just because you're a human being, does not make you a person, does not mean you are deserving of human rights. So this statement that a fetus is a baby, and ironically, referring to Christian fascists and this general opposition to religion, it is exclusively a religious and a moral claim, because it has to be. And, and the challenge there, and we're not going to dive deeply into this, but we need to understand the worldview under worldview claims behind the statement that a fetus is not a baby. And what they're saying is being a human being does not make you a person. You have to be a human being. Then you have to be able to prove yourself. You have to be able to exist outside the womb. You have to be able to be conscious. You have to be able to feed yourself. It's being a human being plus something. Once you prove yourself, then you get to be a person and have legal rights. Until then, we can kill you if you want to. And of course, that's not a biblical perspective, but that's a perspective they have to create in order to justify their position on abortion. But, David, uh, let's get to another one of these clips. Uh, we're going to go ahead and play. Let's do this clip. Uh, which one? Let's play clip six, because there's another moral argument being made here, this time from the great state of New York. David, it's basically a worship service. Thank yeah. God for abortion. You have uh, the woman in the previous video referring to him as Christian fascist. Then you have this woman apparently celebrating the idea that God gives us abortion as one of his good gifts. What's going on here? Yeah, I, I think what you just described kind of as, as a worship service is exactly what looked like it was taking place there. Now, I don't know that lady. I don't know what's in her heart. Uh, it, my first, The first time I watched this clip earlier today, 
I would imagine there's some sarcasm, there's some irony. I think these uh, folks, you know, have went to that church to, to protest, to be disruptive, to make a lot of noise. And again, this of all Sundays, this happened on Mother's Day. Um, I would want to ask that lady a lot of questions. Uh, you know, does she really believe in God? My assumption would be she she probably doesn't have what we would call a biblical uh, understanding of who God is. Um, but it does show, Joseph, again, you know, just going back to the previous segment you did with Leela, um, you know, persecution that we endure in the United States is nothing like what believers around the world endure. So it does uh, a segment about the, the, the sweet college student who was killed in Nigeria. This gives us perspective, but it does still show us, though, Joseph, in the United States, this really uh, anti-Christ, um, anti-God uh, spirit uh, that is alive and well, that's really been provoked uh, by this, by the, their sacrament, which let's make no mistake, uh, abortion is the, the far left sacrament. Now that that's become, that's being threatened, we're seeing them respond and it is interesting that on the same side of the issue politically, you have some people who are raging in a very real sense against God and his physical representation through the church here on earth. And that's where they go to protest. And then you have other people who are reaching the same conclusion when saying that God gave us this. And it, and it illustrates that humans have the ability to rationalize whatever we want to believe. And some people will say, I, I believe this, therefore I hate God who tells me no. And other people will just create a God in their own image who allows them to do what they want to do. Both of them are problematic. Uh, one is just a different kind of idolatry against God. But David, I want to also talk in our last few minutes here about the way we respond uh, to these protests. Um, Reverend Brian Grave from St. Patrick's Old Cathedral in New York City. Here's what he had to say. Let's play clip eight. This won't stop us, but it propels us to continue to be witnesses for Christ in the world. David, with respect to the churches being targeted by these protests, what's the right way to respond? I think the way to respond in one sense, Joseph, is just to remember what Jesus said. Um, I just I brought my Bible with me and looking at John 15 and, and 16. This is the last time Jesus was with his disciples right before he went into Gethsemane. And one of the last things Jesus wanted Christians, his followers to know is that you will be persecuted. John 15, verse 18, he just Jesus said very clearly, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then in chapter 16, Jesus says in verse 1, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And then in verse 4, I've said these things to you, things about persecution, that when, they're at, when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you. So I think the first thing, when, when any time a Christian experiences persecution because of their uh, allegiance, uh, because of their following of Jesus, we need to realize Jesus has gone before us. Uh, and so I think we, we shouldn't be uh, shocked. We shouldn't be stunned. We shouldn't be overly surprised when the world pushes back against us because the world crucified our Savior. And so I think we, we need to respond in, in a way that is gentle. Uh, but even, you know, uh, J Joseph, uh, we need to stand for truth. Uh, Jesus, he, he was gentle. He was mild and meek. 
but he, he, he stood for truth. One example that comes to my mind is when Jesus saw the money changers in the temple, uh, he didn't just uh, overlook what they were doing. He drove them out with a whip. And so I think there's a balance between we expect persecution, but we do need to take our stand um, for biblical truth, things that the Bible clearly teaches us or things that God cares about. And to that point, this is, these are very specific people who are doing these things. And in some cases, you see people protesting outside your church. There are people who have created Molotov cocktails and basically started buildings on fire. In addition to the spiritual war that we know is happening in, in the recognition of that context of these personal conflicts, how should we think about the people who might be standing outside of our house, might be standing outside of the nonprofit that we volunteer at, might be standing outside of our church, or in some cases coming into our church and trying to be disruptive yeah. and expressing their anger? What's the mind of Christ about those people that we see on the other side of this conflict who might be in some cases very angry with us? Yeah. God sees those people as people that are made in his image and people that he loves, people that his son loves. You know, when I, when I think about this, Joseph, I think about uh, Paul. When we first meet Paul, he was there approving the stoning of Stephen, and yet he met God and was radically changed. And so people that are on the other side of the picket line, we, we need to pray for them. We need to love them because by the grace of God, God, just the way he saved us, every salvation is a miracle. If he can save David Clawson, if he can save anybody, he can save someone on the other side of the picket line. And so we need to pray for those people and love them into the kingdom. David Clawson, thank you so much for your wisdom. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Remember that, friends. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. That is the mind of Christ. That's how we win not only the temporary issues, but the people for eternity. Thanks for being with us today. You are the reason we are here. Have a great weekend. Until then, fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.